for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, wherever you work, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning, everybody. We had uh, that there. Started out, of course, with deportees. Deportees by the highwaymen. Highwaymen. None other than Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Quite a group there. Johnny Cash singing lead there. Just deportees. Much more about that in a bit. We had then we had traveling soldier by the Dixie Chicks about to the fact that every day somewhere American troops are involved in wars. Every day. This is for those soldiers who are out there and also to get them back home. Wars where. Workers of one class shoot down workers of another class. Thin out the possibility of resistance to capitalism. And last, we had Etta James, Queen of the Blues, Gotta Serve Somebody. The Bob Dylan classic reminds us that yes, your indecision, your hesitation, serve someone. By just standing around, you're rushing backwards. Okay, now I remarked about that case, talking about that case of uh, deportees. And the song, of course, relates the fact that even though <clears throat> these people have come to the United States and worked, you know, they're uncelebrated. No one remembers them. Just barely their names, and other than that, they'll be just deportees. The song was written by Woody Guthrie and popularized by Pete Seeger. Since then, it's been recorded by virtually everybody. Chicano writer Tim D. Hernandez decided that, yeah, that wasn't good enough. He wanted to go and find out who these people were. This is part of a uh, interview Latino USA. 32 people on the plane, four Americans, including three crew members and an immigration official, and 28 migrant farm workers. Everyone died that morning, all in the same way. But they were not all treated the same after death. The 28 Mexican field workers on that plane were known as braceros. They had come here at the request of the US government and were headed back to Mexico, but didn't make it. After the crash, only the remains of the four Americans were sent back to their families. The Mexican citizens were buried in a mass grave in California under a tiny plaque that read, 28 Mexican citizens 
who died in an airplane accident near Kalinga. 28 Mexican citizens. That's all they would call them. And for decades, that's all there was. No one identified the remains of the 28 passengers. No one asked for their families. No one really paid attention until a Mexican-American author came along and it became personal. From NPR and Futuro Media, this is Latino USA. I'm Fernanda Chavarri, guest hosting today's episode, where we go back 70 years to find out the names of those 28 unnamed people and find out how one man made it his life mission to give them names. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Maggie Freeling. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Fernanda. So when you and I found out about this incident that took place 70 years ago, we were talking about how these people were virtually forgotten. They were nameless in death and in the news. But the crash itself, it turns out that more people might know about it than they realize. Goodbye to my one goodbye, Rosalina. Adios, mi amigos. And it's all because of one song that kept the story alive throughout the decades, a song that has a very long, confusing title. Deportee, parentheses, plain wreck at Los Gatos. And it's sung here by Pete Seeger, a super famous American folk music icon. 600 miles to that Mexico border. But Pete didn't write the song. He just made it famous in the 1950s. Pete's good friend Woody Guthrie wrote it. When Woody heard about the crash on the radio, he felt this strong sense of injustice. So he wrote his feelings down as a poem, and it later became the song. Who are these friends who are scattered like dried leaves? The radio said they were just deportees. These kinds of poems and lyrics were not unusual for Woody Guthrie. He was always sort of a revolutionary. Well, Woody was kind of the embodiment of your quote-unquote everyman in the sense that he lived and worked and wrote and traveled among the people. I'm Nora Guthrie, and I'm Woody Guthrie's daughter. We called Nora to find out why Woody wrote this. There was a very strong similarity between the migrant workers in the 1930s and the Okies in the 1930s. The Okies were farmers in Arkansas, Kansas, Tennessee, and, of course, Oklahoma. They lost their homes during the Dust Bowl and migrated to California. Woody Guthrie was one of these people. When Woody came to California, he was homeless, living in tents and little tin shacks. And so were the Mexican field workers. <laughs> They're kind of all in the same boat. And I think that just instinctively, he connected with their plight. He didn't start out to be political. He started out just being curious. So he would always dig further and further uh, into the news reports. And that was what happened with the plane wreck at Los Gatos. Somewhere along the way, Pete Seeger, who was Woody's friend, got a hold of the poem, set it to music, and started singing it. Then the song got huge. It took on a life of its own and was covered by dozens of musicians. Johnny Cash, Johnny Rodriguez. The crops are all in and the beaches are rotten. Dolly Parton. The oranges are piled. Joan Baez. So Bob Dylan. Bruce Springsteen. 
and Woody's son, Arlo Guthrie. So you have all these super famous all-American music icons singing about Mexican farm workers in the 1940s. And it's really crazy because this song was sung throughout the decades, and yet nobody bothered to find out who these people were. And my father left a lot of songs like this. Sometimes I call them like seeds to be harvested by the next generation. So the, the thing is that he left this song with the question, why weren't the deportees named? These are the words that kept sort of, I kept humming in my head, all they will call you will be deported, all they will call uh, I'm Tim Hernandez, and I'm the author who's been working on this Plain Rick Los Gatos for the last uh, seven years. And the name of your book is? The name of my book is All They Will Call You. So here's where Tim comes in. He's a professor and an author, so he's always sort of digging for stories. One day, Tim was doing research for something unrelated back in 2010 when he came across a newspaper article. And it said 100 people see an airplane fall out of the sky, ship plunge to earth, and, and it was a farm labor accident. So Tim was like, weird, that sounds familiar. And he realized that it was the same story as the one he knew from the song. And the same way that Woody Guthrie was bothered by the injustice decades ago, Tim too wanted resolution for the families of the victims. So Tim set off on a quest. You know, I just let my curiosity sort of pull me, and I began to ask, who is all, and who are they, and what do they call you? And, and that's, uh, that's just what kept me going. That was a, a quest that over the years became more and more personal for Tim, as he saw the similarities between his life growing up in the Central Valley and the migrant farm workers who died that day. You know, growing up, the son of migrant farm workers, I saw firsthand the moments where my family uh, felt voiceless, and um, and I started to see them play out as I got older, not beyond my family. I'd see them play out in the broader community, you know. Tim put himself in the shoes of these 28 families and thought, this could have been me. This could have been my family. I was born and raised here in California's San Joaquin Valley, the agricultural hub here. Uh, my parents were actually migrant farm workers originally from South Texas and New Mexico. You know, kind of growing up with migrant family, uh, you know, we traveled a lot, quite a bit, working in different fields and different harvests um, throughout the year. And my parents did that pretty much, uh, you know, up until, I don't know, I was about maybe eight or nine. And although Tim's family didn't participate in the Bracero program, they did spend generations working the fields in Texas and California. Farming is America's biggest industry. All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor. The Bracero program, to summarize, was a seasonal worker program that was a sort of amicable agreement between the U.S. and Mexico that went on from the early 40s to the mid-60s. At that time, the U.S. desperately needed workers to pick fruits and vegetables. It isn't easy to find men willing to take on such undesirable kinds of work. Understandably, then, the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens. So they gave Mexican farm workers temporary permits to come here and do the work. Millions of Mexican workers came and went. When the harvesting season was over and the U.S. government didn't need them anymore, they would send them back by train or fly them by plane. And that morning, that's exactly what was happening. Those 28 migrant workers were flying from San Francisco to El Centro, right on the border with Mexico, in a U.S. government chartered plane. 
So based on Tim's research and interviews with the families over the years, here's what happened after the crash. Officials recovered as many scattered body parts as they could. Then they formally notified the families of the four Americans and sent them caskets of pieced together remains, some as far as upstate New York. As for the Mexican passengers, the leftover body parts were also put in caskets, but they were not sent back to Mexico. They were buried in that mass grave we mentioned earlier, 14 on one side, 14 on the other in Fresno, California. So the Mexican passengers' bodies were never repatriated. Some families in Mexico were notified by the Mexican government via letter. Others only heard about it on the radio. It's unclear exactly how each of the families found out, and if they even knew where their loved ones were buried. We reached out to the Mexican government officials at the embassy in D.C., but were denied an interview. Of course, we weren't going to find people working there who were working for the Mexican government 70 years ago, but we wanted to know how the government handled this. An official said via email that today their policy is to help families in Mexico find funeral homes and cremation services in the U.S., and that based on the family's financial need, the Mexican government can help them pay for part of the cost of getting their remains back to Mexico. We also wanted to know how only some of the victims of the crash ended up identified. So to find out, we flew to meet Tim Hernandez in California. This is all cattle territory up here. It's uh, Los Gatos Canyon. It's all ranchers. In fact, Larry's um, family were cattle ranchers up there. They were... Correct. And oh so, God, did you see the baby cows? I'm sorry. I know. They were the cutest little baby cows. <laughs> did you see the big long horns earlier? Yes. Yeah. We're driving to Colinga about an hour southwest from Fresno with Tim and his friend Larry Hawes. Larry's a Harley-riding, leather-vest-wearing white guy. He's sort of Tim's sidekick and an unofficial historian of his own family, the family that owned the property where the plane crashed 70 years ago. It's hard. Every turn looks the same here, unless you know exactly where the crash happened. So then that's what prompted me to want to call, find Larry's, the Gaston family, so that I could identify exactly where it happened. I have to ask, what are we driving through? What is, what is this? This is called the oil patch, and this is the Kalinga oil field. And uh, this is, Colinga uh, is actually Coling Station A. Oil was actually discovered here. And today, there's a whole bunch of industrial oil derricks covering a huge part of a barren desert area. The plane would have been able to see these oil derricks as it was coming in here this way. And because he had crash landed that airplane twice before, it, it makes sense that one could actually, you know, you could surmise from that that he was more than likely looking for a strip of dirt to land on. There's nothing you can do. Crash landed it two twice. Other <laughs> that same exact airplane he had crash landed twice before. Okay, so it wasn't the exact plane, but the kind of plane, a Douglas DC-3, which back in the 30s and 40s was a pretty revolutionary plane. Frank Atkinson, the pilot, was used to flying and crash landing the DC-3. So he thought he could land that plane again, and he might have been able to if all that was wrong was a plane malfunction. But plane wing broke off and it started spinning out of control and throwing people out. We're here? Yeah, we are here. We're going through the barbed wire fence. I'm so short. This barely works. <laughs> 
This is the actual crash site, and this was where the main bodies were at, and dead people were everywhere right where we're standing. Larry wasn't born when the plane crashed, but growing up, he heard stories about that day and about how his family raced to the scene to help in any way they could. Larry's mom and his Aunt June were little girls at the time. His Aunt June was nine years old when she saw the wreckage and is the only surviving witness in Larry's family. June was standing, you know, not too far off here looking at and I witnessing all this. June is turning 80 soon, and she still remembers it all in very graphic detail. So we called her to get her account of what happened. We saw bushes with brains hanging on it, and my thought then, as a little girl, that looks like decorating a Christmas tree. It was just all over with these brains. At the time, June didn't realize the impact this would have on her beyond the trauma of witnessing a crash. Do you remember as you got older, learning more about it? I do remember because my mother was following it in the papers. And I remember her shortly after that saying, this has become an international incident because they've buried all of these uh, people together in a mass grave. Then that really occurred to me how really terrible that was, that they were just demeaning these people because they weren't us. By leaving their name off, I finally came to see what an insult it was. Tim also felt like the 28 people who died that day were not treated humanely or equal to the families of the American passengers. So he wanted to right that wrong. Tim felt that these braceros were sort of invisible in life. And then in death, they weren't even given a name. In some big dream I might have in the future, maybe put a, some kind of a headstone marker with their names on it. So first, he went to the cemetery in Fresno where the mass grave is. He wanted to see the plot. So he asked Carlos Rascón, the cemetery director, to show him. After they walked over and saw the tiny plaque in the back of the cemetery that read 28 Mexican citizens, Tim asked Carlos to see the cemetery's ledger of names. Surely the cemetery would have a record of who was buried there, right? But when Carlos pulled it out of the archives... It just said, you know, um, Mexican nationals 28 times. At this point, Carlos also wanted to find their names. He wanted to know who was buried in his cemetery. So Carlos joined Tim on his search, which led them to one more place, the Hall of Records in Fresno. That's the place that keeps all birth and death certificates. And it was there that they were finally able to get a list of names. But they quickly realized that list was unreliable. In Mexico, you usually have two last names, your maternal last name and paternal last name, and so many of them were treated as first names. There was somebody with the last name Lara that was turned into a woman named Laura, and many of the names in Spanish were turned into Italian names. So they knew right away this list was botched. The fact that they were misspelled, it kind of maybe shows a little bit of who might have been behind the pen or the books. Sure enough, there had always been a list with the names. But why didn't it make it to the cemetery? I would think that it's just, it was a very sad oversight, I would say. So there they were with an actual list of names in their hands for the first time, and it was wrong. But then... Carlos remembered that every November, on the Day of the Dead, someone came by to leave flowers at the mass grave. 
someone was visiting a loved one. This was Tim's first real clue that these people were not totally forgotten. He wanted to find who that person was. So Tim put out a call on the local paper in Fresno that said, if you or someone you know is related to any of the 28 Mexican passengers who died in that plane crash in 1948, contact me. And someone did. That's coming up after the break. Okay, and uh, we'll take a break here too. Play the rest of that later in the show. So far, Tim Tim Hernandez, Chicano writer, has decided to find out the names of those people and not leave them as being deportees. Great story. Okay. Poetry by Jack Kerouac. I had a slouch hat, too, one time. The old slouch hat. I just keep walking around, and he keeps walking around with me, around and around that necktie counter we went. When it rained, I wore my old slouch hat. It was a good felt that I uh, had to carry through many rainy days, late fall and early spring. Perhaps it was a rainy day, and the house dick might have saw my hat. Each tie on that ring worth six bucks. Brooks Brothers, 60 bucks worth of ties. Slacks with peculiarities. Couldn't even find a pair of slacks I thought it was suitable to wear. Wrapped one pair around me and pinned it in with a safety pin. <laughs> Pulled up my trousers and went out and looked at myself in the mirror. Oh no, those won't do. And I walked out. Wrapped the slacks around my waist. Took two other pair, went to the mirror, threw them at the salesman. No, those won't do. Good afternoon, and walked out. The slouch hat I got at Harvard Club, Yale Club, Princeton Club, or one of the other Dartmouth Club, University Club. Always barred the Yacht Club, because it was a little over my kin. Because the doorman knew that only Mr. Astor, Mr. Vanderbilt, and Mr. Whitney belonged. He couldn't say, good morning, Mr. Astor, because he knew I wasn't Mr. Astor. I always figured a way to heal into those other clubs. Not only a member of Who's Who, but a Who's Who also have to be a member of Who's Who in New York in the special clique of Who's. <laughs> I'd get in the athletic club many times. Then I'd go up in the billiard room. And I would wander back around the room, hands and back, and. Every coat rack I backed up against peeled for the wallet. One day I walked out of there with 10 wallets. Bellboy looking me over. Pretty soon a very dignified looking gentleman come up and buzzed the bellboy. He says, who? And I says, man told me his name while we're drinking at the bar and told me to meet him in this billiard room at the athletic club. I don't see him, so I best I better go. Well, tell me about the old slouch hat. Oh, one of my numerous trips to one of the numerous clubs in New York City. The hat finally was left in the hotel, which I had to leave rather hurriedly one night, never to return. So the hat was given to the cast-offs of the hotel, which they collect and rummage selves. May now be worn by one of the members of Skid Row, New York City, the Bowery. 
I seen that hat by moonlight. Yeah. I had a pointed mustache, and I mean pointed, half inch from here. Double-breasted vest and a derby hat and striped trousers, English shoes, black, very pointed. They were Hannah shoes. People on Broadway turn and look at me. The worst is yet to come. I had a paint knee with a long black ribbon to my buttonhole, and I wore a carnation, white or red. Boy, did I look like something. A year later, I got caught. I was dressed differently and everything, but boy, that mustache and that pince necks was really out of this world. I used that outfit six months. Finally had to pack it in because it was too well worn. Pince nez was in a coat I stole. Mustache I grew in the sanitarium while taking one of my numerous drug cures. My mother comes to see me, she says, oh no, cut it off. I'm just having a little fun, mother. Took it on the lamb and went to Canada. Late at night, I'm full of morphine and I come down full of goofballs too. This guy had ventriloquist doll and he gave out this Texas guinan routine. Hello, sucker. We like your money as well as anybody else's. As a matter of fact, the bigger your roll, the more we take you. He used to get everybody interested with the doll and cut out silhouettes, put stripes in your tie. Wound up in his room, gave him a shot of morphine. Out on the highway, I thumbed the ride into Buffalo, and I put the bum on the guy for something to eat. He said, eat in my drugstore. So we went in the back, and he had corn on the cob and boiled potatoes. Say, fella, I always hear people talk about morphine. What's it look like? He shows me. He had a key, a cabinet. He had bottles of hundreds, quarter grains, half grains, pentapon, dilated, everything. As soon as he tended the customers, I emptied the bottles. Got out of there pretty quick, bought a safety pin in Buffalo, and took a shot in the toilet. Come out and saw a fella shaving, his coat hanging there. Hung my own coat and gave his coat a brush in my hand. Felt his wallet, washed my hands, went out and took off with the wallet. So I started out on a shoplifting campaign in Buffalo. It was about 1910. Wasn't very experienced at it. Started out with a top coat and sold it in the taxi cab stand. Next day I decided to get myself some suits and I went up and I had a suit box and I walked about and put the suit box in one of the dressing rooms, looked and fooled in the mirror, went out and I hawked those two. Next day, like a damn fool, go out to the same store, but I got a newspaper instead of a suit box. Thought I'd try a new routine. Two guys kind of watching me. I went in and wrapped myself up, two suits, went in the elevator. Bottom gentleman tapped me on the arm. Will you come with me, please? And the county jail, they ate breakfast. You got oatmeal with one spoonful of molasses. For lunch, stew, mostly bones, graveyard stew. And for supper, dinner at night, beans. And you couldn't smoke. Tampoco es que yo exija Ni tierras, ni riquezas Más que estar recibiendo Me gusta regalar 
tan solo estoy pidiendo sentirme bien amada, que me amen como yo amo, con fuego y compasión. Ojalá comprendiera que estoy desesperada, buscando quien se entregue. Yo. Princesa ni esclava, simplemente mujer, ni dueña de la noche, ni dueña de la noche, ni del amanecer, ni princesa ni
a random set we had uh first of all jack kerouac from an album that he made with uh steve allen pianist poetry for the beat generation that was slouch hat jack kerouac then from uh jenny rivera late jenny rivera Long Beach, California. And the bad news this week for her ex, Esteban Loyasa, Loyasa, hope I'm getting that right, who was a pitcher uh, for a while, a very accomplished pitcher. All-star, started the all-star game for the American League, won 20 games with the Chicago White Sox. Uh, was arrested just across the border here in California with a big catch of cocaine. Secret room. House. And he sang, Ni princesa ni esclava. Not a princess, but I'm not a slave. The woman. And John Fromer there, another late comrade, brother, John Fromer. Uh, with We Do the Work. What I want to do now is finish the Deportees documentary. Tim Z. Hernandez's attempt to find out who those 28 deportees were, the ones that were sung about, famous Woody Guthrie. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. whose bodies had been buried in a mass grave under a plaque that read 28 Mexican citizens. And not long after Tim put out the call, he got a response. Someone gave me a piece of newspaper and said, look, they're talking about your grandpa's uh, plane crash. This is Jaime Ramirez. We met him in Fresno with Tim. And I started reading it. He said, and I got my computer and I started... Jaime went to his computer and started writing Tim an email. He wrote in Spanish. 
I know about the accident because that's where my maternal grandfather, named Ramon Paredes, and my uncle, Guadalupe Ramirez Lara, were killed. Jaime then included his address. My phone number. And ended with, if you need information, just let me know. Anything that you want to know, just... Yeah. What do you need to know? I'm right here. <laughs> I was like, wow. And so that was really hopeful. Your email, as short as it was and as quick as it was, it had so much hope inside of it. And so I was excited to, to meet you right away. Yeah. And not only is Jaime a surviving family member, but Tim didn't have to go to Mexico. Jaime was right there in Fresno. Jaime owns a restaurant called Ole Frijole, and everyone in Fresno knows the restaurant. Most of the employees there are related to Jaime, and they're descendants of two of the passengers from the plane crash, his uncle and his grandpa. So when he first told me that that was his restaurant, I said, no, I said, you're kidding, because I've been there since I was a kid. You know, I've been going there. I'm sure I've seen you before, and that's my restaurant. And I said, it's legendary. And he said, yeah, it is. You were looking for me, and I was right there. And Jaime was there all along in more than one way. Remember the flowers that someone was putting on the mass grave on Dia de los Muertos? And I said, wow, you know, I wonder who that person is. Later on, I would learn that it was... Yes, I was in Salinas. It was Jaime. He's the one that was putting flowers on the grave. He was Tim's first found family member. And turns out, he was also Tim's golden ticket. The newspaper that my grandmother kept, and I kept it, I don't know why. So here's what happened. Not long after the crash in 1948, a small Spanish-language newspaper published an article that listed every passenger with the correct spelling of both last names. And it had all the names and where they were from in Mexico, the little towns. This was it. Three years of searching, and Tim finally had their names. El Faro. Very old. It looks like it's a front page, right? Uh, yeah, it is. It is the front page. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's a front page, and in the front page you have the two photos of a priest <laughs> uh, looking the over the, the bodies yeah. for the funeral service. On the right side is the column that has all of the names. First, last name, where they're from, the names of their parents or wives if they knew them. Wow. I'm going to try to translate that as beautifully as it is written in Spanish. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, the 31st of January, that just passed, there was a funeral for the 28 compatriots that were chosen by destiny to perish in an unfortunate accident near Colinga, California. Like, just the way that this mm-hmm. is written is super, like, old oh, it's, newspaper. It's very poetic it's really also. really poetic. It's very poetic. In fact, even the, even the um, biblical sort of... Um, Seeing how the Spanish-language paper uh, wrote about the 28 Mexican victims made it even more clear just how differently their deaths were treated and how their remains were handled. 28 families without closure, without being able to have a physical place to mourn. And although, yes, most of the families knew how their sons, brothers, and husbands had died, they didn't get to have a funeral or a place to visit their loved one, lay flowers, just grieve. And as any cemetery director would know, Carlos says there is an importance to being able to visit someone's grave. It just a sense of emptiness, like, wait a minute, you know, it's not just uh, some John Doe that got, you know, no family, indigent, nobody knows. 
there was information. And so I left kind of a blank there, like, wait a minute. Oh. So now, with the full names spelled correctly, Tim, Carlos, and Jaime could start the process of making a proper headstone with all the names on it. And they would also travel to Mexico to try and find other families. Tim wanted to tell them that their loved ones were no longer in a nameless mass grave. So the first family Tim wanted to meet was Jaime's. Remember, both his grandfather and great-uncle died in the crash. So Tim and Jaime got on a plane and flew to Guanajuato in central Mexico. They were there on the 67th anniversary of the crash. Jaime set up a meeting with his family, and right at 10.40 a.m., the time when the plane crashed, they had a moment of silence. During the trip, Jaime told Tim a little more about his grandfather and great-uncle. Guadalupe and Ramon grew up in Charco de Pantoja, a farming community in Guanajuato. When they got older, they both owned land and farmed garbanzo beans, wheat, and alfalfa. But their town struggled to get an irrigation system in place. They didn't have the money to get it set up. That's when the idea to go work in the fields in California came up. So they both went back and forth working as braceros and bringing money back to their town. Do you remember stories growing up about them? Yeah. It's my, my, my tío. I still have to see. Era muy contento. Le gustaba andar a caballo. His uncle liked horse riding and to just like and my shoot up bullets in the air. Me decía que iba al pueblo, oía los balazos y decía, es el pelos de lote. Así le llamaban a mi tío porque estaba muy güero. His uncle was so blonde that they called him corn hair, yes. like <laughs> pelos de lote. Jaime's family is split between Fresno, California, and Guanajuato. And these are the types of stories that have been keeping his grandfather alive in Jaime's memory. So for Jaime to tell his family, his mother mostly, that her father would no longer be buried under a nameless headstone, it was life-changing. Now we know who the people are. Now we know who their lives are, who their family are. We know how they, how they are in this community. So on September 2nd, 2013, the new headstone was unveiled in the cemetery. These braceros, who were once invisible and forgotten under a mass grave, had their names on a big, beautiful marble headstone. Miguel Negrete Alvarez, Francisco Llamas Duran, Santiago Garcia Elizondo, Rosalio Padilla Estrada, Bernabel Lopez Garcia, Ramón Paredes González, Tomás Aviña de Gracia, Guadalupe Ramírez Lara, Severo Medina Lara. In this moment of having these names carved into stone forever, this is what Tim and Jaime wanted for years. Manuel Calderón Merino, Luis Cuevas Miranda, Martín Razo Navarro, Ignacio Pérez Navarro, Romano Choa Ochoa, Apolonio Ramírez Plasencia, Alberto Carlos Raigosa, Guadalupe Hernández Rodríguez, María Santana Rodríguez, Juan Valenzuela Ruiz, Wenceslao Flores José Ruiz, José Valdivia Sánchez, Jesús Mesa Santo, Baldomero Marcas. Around the edges of the headstone are 32 leaves for the song that says, Who are these friends all scattered like dry leaves? Which brings us back to the song. Who are all these friends now scattered? Folk musician Pete Seeger, just like Tim, was always curious about his friend Woody Guthrie's inspiration for the poem. 
When Tim was working on this back in 2013, Pete actually gave him a call. Hi, this is Pete Seeger uh, trying to get a message to Tim Hernandez. I'd like to talk to you. Pete also wanted to know, who were these people? And Tim had the answer. Did you ever think, Pete, you know, singing that song at any point that maybe someday someone would answer, answer that, who are these friends? No. And you took it on as a job that God would want done. <laughs> Tim wound up meeting Pete in person, where he told him the names of the 28 passengers. And then, in commemoration, Pete played Deportee, Plain Wreck at Los Gatos. Goodbye to my Juan. Goodbye, Rosalita. Adios, mis amigos. Jesus. Tim wouldn't know it, but this would be the last time Pete would sing the song. He died a few months later. And those friends who were scattered like dry leaves had all been memorialized together in the end. The headstone also included the names of the four American crew members, because as Tim saw it, leaving them out would be perpetuating the same kind of omission, that erasure that started all of this in the first place. And since Tim had been in touch with the American families for a while, they were able to travel to Fresno and attend the ceremony at Holy Cross Cemetery. Jaime was there too, and at one point, a brown SUV pulled up and Jaime's brother Guillermo got out. He opened the door and helped his 77-year-old mother, Caritina Paredes Murillo, step out. She was a kid when her father died in the crash. My mother also, I think she said that she felt like uh, she was in the actual burying or ceremony. From oh, because she never got to do an actual funeral. So yes, for her, this was she, really the yeah. first as if it was happening like, decades ago. Yes, yes, she felt like that, like she was burying her father. And when you're standing here right now, what are you thinking about? Muy contento, I have to say in Spanish. Muy contento porque se les está dando un reconocimiento a ellos que nadie siquiera se los hizo. He's happy that there's recognition and honoring of them, finally, in this community at least, because they didn't really get any recognition or anything anywhere else. Estuvieron en la oscuridad, se le puede llamar. They were in darkness, you could say. In the, sh in the shadows, almost. In, right? Yes, yeah. in the shadows. Yeah. And I'll never forget when we asked her, you know, how do you feel, Caritina? And she said, well, I, I'm crying, and I don't know if they're tears of joy or tears of pain, you know. After hearing the deportee song play a few times during the ceremony, the Ramirez family requested that mariachis play Mexico Lindo y Querido. Mexico Lindo y Querido. <laughs> si muero lejos de ti. The song lyrics say, My dear and beautiful Mexico, if I die far away from you, say that I'm sleeping so they can bring me back to you. Mexico lindo y querido, si muero lejos de ti, 
with Jaime's family, Tim continued traveling in Mexico and the U.S. trying to answer Woody Guthrie's question, who are these friends? And as of today, Tim has been able to connect with the relatives of six of the 28 Mexican passengers. So he's still searching. As a chair of the California Latino Legislative Caucus, I rise to recognize a tragic incident that occurred 70 years ago. Two weeks ago, on the 70th anniversary of the crash, the California State Senate held an emotional ceremony to formally recognize, for the first time in history, the 28 Mexican victims of the plane crash. Senator Ben Hueso stood next to Jaime and other surviving family members as they held photos of their relatives. And the Senate didn't forget to honor the man who spent seven years of his life making this all possible. Tim Hernandez did the work that the government should have done, but 70 years later, they will be remembered as a valued part of the history of our state. This story was produced by me, Fernanda Chavarri, and Maggie Freeling. It was edited by Nadia Raymond. The Latino USA team includes Marlon Bishop, Andres Caballero, Antonia Cerejido, Jeannie Montalvo, Janice Yamoka, and Sayer Quevedo. Our engineer and music editor is Cornelius McMoyler. Our production manager is Natalia Fiederholtz. Our interns are Stephanie Cano and Reese Williams. Special thanks to Tim Hernandez. His book, All They Will Call You, is out now.
like right-wing death squad democracy. Please take Iran, Nicaragua yesterday. They say fairly, government keep the secret police off of me. Russia's red babble tower. Jesus Christ was spotless but was crucified by the mob. Law and order Herod's hired soldiers did the job. Flower power's fine but innocence has got no protection. A man who shot John Lennon had a hero worshippers connection. The song is that the world is in a horrible place Scientific industry devours the human race Police in every country armed with tear gas and TV Secret masters everywhere bureaucratized for you and me Terrorists and police together build the lower class rage Propaganda, murder, manipulate the upper class stage. Can't tell the difference between a turkey and a provocateur. If you're feeling confused, the government's in there for sure. Oh, I do pity 
the poem of Grant, whose very strength is spent in vain. Black and brown fighting together on the day I'll always remember. And 
el 5 de mayo con el grito de gallo, black, white, and brown, bleeding together on the day out always. Remember. Because really, it hasn't been that long, so just in case Cat Williams had you guessing, let me kick y'all down with a little history lesson. In the 19th century, while the U.S. promoted degradation, annihilation with its military and U.S. Navy, Mexico got rid of the caste system, voted for its first indigenous president, even getting rid of legalized slavery. The Underground Railroad also ran south, which led black folks to freedom, with Mexico right there to receive them. Mexican men with Pancho Villa and Zapata fighting for tierra, libertad, y techo with Adelitas on the front line with bullets across their pecho. In the year 1946, it was the Mendez family that fought against segregation in schools. Because before that, they treated us like fools, pushing us out into gangs, wars, and drugs. And then they get pissed off at us when we become crips and bloods, traviesos, zutsuras, pachucos, folkloristas, punks, bomberas, haraneras in the heat, haraneras with the bomb as beats, talking about what's really going on in the streets. In the 60s, in the streets of Oakland, California, Black Panthers organized for answers. Young lords in New York fought against wars. The Stonewall Rebellion remained true for the rights of the LGBTQ. AIM, who was down for native rights with no shame in their game. Brown berets in LA learning how to fight and doing what's right. In the campos of California, Filipinos were the first ones to lay down the boycott. Screaming in solidarity, Isang Baksak, one rise, one fall. You come for one, you come for all. And today, Arizona and Alabama, they don't play. Carving out racist laws like it's made out of clay. I stand with Emmett, Trayvon, Oscar, and Bell. With my mentor, Mumia, up in the cell. Telling you I'd rather be blind than to stay quiet on a day while my people are hunt down like prey. My ability to breathe is directly connected to my ability to see. It's not about me, never was, never will be. It's about we. It's time to move, y'all. It's movement time. My set sets today are very eclectic. Taken a little from everywhere. <clears throat> Last one was Las Cafeteras with a condensed version of uh, U.S. history, U.S. and Mexican history. The admonition that it's movement time. Don't stand still. Taj Mahal was next with I Pity the Poor Immigrant song that so, for me, encapsulates the belief systems of the people who, not only the people who voted for him, the people who have remained faithful to him as he exposes himself. I would say a traitor to American democracy. Uh, 
Allen Ginsberg was a capital air. Did some recordings like that, sort of out loud poetry with some Teddy. something special called working and it's musical presentation based on a book by Studge Terkel, Chicago journalist wrote about working wrote a book called working which he interviewed people See if we can play some of it. Working by Stephen Schwartz and Nina Fazzo. From the book by Studs Terkel, with songs by Craig Carnelia, Mickey Grant, Mary Rogers, Susan Birkenhead, Stephen Schwartz, and James Taylor. Recorded before an audience. LA Theatre Works is proud to present the first revised and updated version of this 1970s popular classic. Based on Studs Terkel's amazing book about everyday exertion and everyday people, working is for anyone who has ever punched a clock, a cow, or a supervisor, or wanted to. And now, working.
We make suitcases. Well, I always wanted to be a fireman. You know, a lot of guys want to be I have to be a waitress. How else does the world stop putting I started to be crops when I was eight. I couldn't do much, but every little bit counts. Every time I would get behind. Hey, somebody, don't you want to hear the story of my life? One of them movie companies, TV documentaries. Won't you come and ask me, please? And pay me a million dollars to tell you what I do at the store. Because if you pay me a million dollars, I wouldn't got to go and do it no more. One, two, three, four. Just like the song said, all the live long day. Everybody I know that song. Working for a living the whole day long. All the live long day. Hey, somebody, what you doing? Typically in the morning, you wait at the shanty till 7 o'clock. You go in at 7, you start walking your way up the ladder, climbing up the steel. Every two floors, you plank it off. Then you disconnect the bottom of the mast, and you tie it to the boom on top of the choking cable. You get a heavy block on the job, probably weighs 200, 250 pounds, something like that. I started when I was 18 years old working structural steel. I worked on towers probably 120, 130 feet high. One of the things they say about somebody with an inferiority complex is they're afraid of heights. So automatically, every iron worker has got an ego. <laughs> you're doing something that somebody else can't do. And you wear a tool belt. 
You know, when you're a kid 18 years old and you have wrenches in like a holster, you're like a cowboy, a sailor. If I put a two by four on the floor, I couldn't knock you off with a stick. But if I put it up 50 feet, and a little gust of wind comes, and you overreact, you end up falling off. That's why most iron workers start off as kids. When you're 18 and just out of school, the guy next to you walks the beam, you're going to try and walk the beam too. Iron workers very, very rarely fall in the hole. That's what our term is. If somebody falls off a building, they fell in the hole. We talk a lot about it among ourselves. You iron work long enough, you're going to get some real scares. I notice myself, I get a copper taste. You know, when you put a penny in your mouth when you were a kid, you know that taste? Taste of fear, I guess. As you get older, you reconcile yourself to the fact that it's easier to drop down and coon across the beam, we call it. It's easier, but you lose all the hair on the inside of your legs. You can always tell an iron worker because they don't have any hair on the inside of their legs. Another bad thing. Up here, we don't have any outhouses or anything, so we got to piss in the columns. Everybody's always drunk the night before, so they're always expelling themselves down these columns. But the problem with that is that eventually something's going to happen where you're going to have to work down below. <laughs> yeah, and the worst thing in the world is you have to burn something down there. You know, it's, it's like cooking a toilet. But I always knew I was going to be an iron worker. My older brothers were iron workers. My father was an iron worker. So it was a natural course of events. My father was very disappointed I didn't go to college. We had a college boy at work this summer. One time he saw a book in the back of my pocket. He was amazed. He says to me, you read? That's what can get to you sometimes, you know, the non-recognition by other people. To say a man is just a laborer, a woman is just a housewife, it bothers you sometimes. Sometimes, some mornings, I look across the skyline for a building I worked on, say, uh, that office building right there, and I look down and I can see Big fancy car pulling into the parking garage I built. All right, that was a couple of cuts from from a uh, presentation, musical actually, by based on the story by Studs Terkel called Working. And at first we heard uh, Hear America Singing, words by Walt Whitman, and second was Iron Worker Monologue, guy talking about working 130, 140 feet up in the air and how uh, iron workers don't fall. with inferiority complexes <clears throat> are afraid of heights. So that's an Looking for some information, uh, writing a piece about early teacher organizing, sort of pre-teachers union efforts to organize teachers. And I ran into this anti-union ran into this anti-union website, which was talking about the scandals, union leadership. They had three different cases of union officials who had absconded with funds from 
one was 400,000, the other was 800,000, smaller than those. And uh, sort of reproducing that these union, union uh, officials had taken money from their membership. Terrible thing, by the way. Certainly not meant to, to allow that to happen. But it reminded me of several similar scandals, similar in some ways, dissimilar in others. For example, the VW Corporation and other auto manufacturers who were caught um, rigging ratings for gas mileage. In other words, claiming that the gas mileage in their cars was much higher than it really was plus the fact that they knew uh, But it sounds like you were into it oh, for so a while, yeah. yeah. Oh, like, well, I love feeling feelings and Bible Belt and one with the universe or something. I don't mm -hmm. know. Feeling is really But it's mostly because I just, I've always been an outsider and I've Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> International banking, diplomatic cables, nuclear missile launch codes all rely on unbreakable encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code-breaking quantum computing. Veteran CIA agent John Clooney must track down the perpetrators and retrieve this technology for the U.S. government, and it's personal, as the Enigma brokers have already cost the lives of his fellow agents, perhaps including his partner. John Wessex's The Enigma Brokers is the first book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? 
I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> I was just leaving the theater. Convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with a white interior. And I started to do some thinking. Around in it on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Looking big splits and cruising. Saturday number two. On the freeway. I am a total Hello, Blake. Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Has John Clooney's friend and ally become a dangerous enemy? Private investigator Anton Gruber has been CIA agent John Clooney's trusted aide. Clooney may have questioned Gruber's taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty, until Gruber double-crossed him. Escaping with his life, Clooney is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised. The investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent, from his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires to a trip up the Amazon in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Hey, Mutineer Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission a leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted 
for you jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed. You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff? Talk to Under. Go to skinonskins.com. That's S-K-I-N-O-N-S-K-I-N-S.com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check him out at SkinOnSkins.com. Volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank. The San Francisco Food Bank relies on volunteers like you to help sort, package, and distribute healthy food to people in need in San Francisco. Each year, over 22,000 people contribute thousands of hours to fighting hunger in our community. This support will enable the SF Food Bank to distribute 43.5 million pounds of food this year, enough for 93.000 meals every day. But they can't do it without volunteers. Visit www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer. Again, www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer to find out how By Richard Penn. By Richard M. Penn. Okay, can you talk in the microphone, please, and see if now, we get anything out of Now, when I'm asked to okay. talk into a microphone, often awesome. the first thing that I can think of is whether or not talking into that microphone will deliver no, to me any sort of financial benefit. Now, thank you. Okay, this is going to be really interesting because, hey, radio listener, we're like... <laughs> Hey, Mutiny Radio listener. It's weird because everything's broken, but we're going to try to have an open mic. Yay. 
They're open up the hummus. The point of eating the snacks is to put it into the hummus. And then the you dip you dip the chips in the hummus, everybody. All right. We've got an open mic here at Mutiny Radio, everybody. It's exciting. It's going to be fun. We're going to see what happens. Put your hands together for your first comedian, everybody. He was just on a date, I guess. Colin Braun, yay! Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I was not on a date. I was having dinner with my friends for my birthday. It's my birthday. Or as I like to call it, that day in the spring when my mom tries to call me. Um, anyway, I'm, uh, I'm doing better. I'm getting divorced, but I'm doing better. I've realized I need to say yes more. Say yes. Say yes. Yes. Say yes to everything. I guarantee you within two days, you'll have five plugs for cocaine. I've been doing a lot of cocaine. I'm a cocaine guy now. I like it. Cocaine's an amazing drug. And just a magnificent drug, a magical drug, gives you the energy and the confidence and the motivation that you need to get out into the world and find more cocaine. Whenever I learn about something new, I, I just write a ton of jokes about it. I could do 30 minutes on cocaine. Normally, it would take me an hour. <laughs> anyway, what I like about Islam... <laughs> need to work on that transition. Um, in Islam, Jesus is considered a major prophet, but he is not considered the son of God. Christians, back in the days of Islam's beginning were just as annoying about Jesus being the son of God as they are to this day at my front door. And Islam addresses this. Every time Jesus comes up in the Quran, they say, da 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 da, -da and then this guy talked to this guy, and then he talked to Jesus, son of Mary. Carrying on. And I love that. I love the shade that that throws to the Christians. Jesus, son of Mary, as if to say, I'm sick of your shit. All right, <clears throat> that one's newer. Um, another thing, um, I, I've noticed that nobody actually knows shit about Islam, um, myself included. And I thought I knew more about Islam than most people, and I do, and that is very little. Um, but something that's always perplexed me is um, praying five times a day. That always seemed excessive. And I've learned recently, because I've been reading the Quran, because I got divorced and I moved and I grabbed a book. Um, wasn't even trying to grab that book. I got three surahs into it, and I realized this isn't Pride and Prejudice. And then I quickly learned both pride and prejudice are to be avoided. At least that is what was revealed to the prophet. Peace be upon him. Anyway, um, originally, God wanted Muslims to pray 50 times a day. But it went all the way down to five as the result of a cosmic negotiation between God and Moses, one of the earlier prophets. And I just think that's amazing. That Moses got God down 90%. That is, the Bay Area equivalent of that is buying a beautiful house in the Oakland Hills for $200,000. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God created the heavens and the earth. We know this from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran. But the Quran alone heavily emphasizes that God is most merciful. And I don't think mercy is a good trait to have if you're in a high-stakes negotiation with history's most powerful Jew. So what happened was the prophet, peace be upon him, he goes up to heaven, and uh, he gets shown around heaven. He, he sees the different levels of heaven. He meets the angels. He sees the copier room. 
Uh, he meets the various prophets, and then he talks to God. And God says, kid, you're fantastic. Love it. Make sure they pray 50 times a day. And the prophet, peace be upon him, he is so polite. He's the messenger of God. What's he, he's not going to argue with God. He's not an arrogant asshole. He's like, perfect, 50's great. And he heads back on down, down the elevator. He runs into Moses again. I was like, oh, how'd it go with God? He's like, oh, he said 50 times a day. And Moses stops the elevator. And he looks at the prophet, peace be upon him, and he says, you just went with the first number he gave? Kid, I know you're new to this. You never pray sticker price. Go back up there. Tell him you know me. Tell him it's too much. 50 is too much. And so the prophet, peace be upon him, he goes back. And God says, fine. 50 is too much. You're right. 45. And the prophet, peace be upon him, he's like, fucking hell yeah. Awesome. Goes back down to Moses. Moses is in the lobby reading a Reader's Digest. So how'd it go? Oh, he said 45. Did you tell him you know me? And this goes back and forth. Nine times the prophet, peace be upon him, makes the journey from one level of heaven to where God is, which is a lot of steps. Any lesser man would have given up. Any lesser man, by the time that it got down to 35, would have just said to Moses, can you just send him an email? I, I can't do this anymore. Not the prophet, peace be upon him. And I just love that Moses, the negotiator, got God down so far. And I'm still working on this joke. I just think it's amazing. Like, if only Noah had Moses on his legal team when God said, build a boat and put two of every animal. <laughs> we'll go on Craigslist. We'll find a boat. We're not going to pay more than $2,500. And three animals within a five-mile radius and a couple of plants. We'll, uh, final offer. What are you going to do, flood us all? He had God by the balls. God is most merciful. God is not a good negotiator. God is not good at business. Frankly, I'm amazed that God even managed to make a profit. My name is Colin Braun. Thank you very much. Hey, Colin Braun, everyone. It's his birthday. Hooray. That's exciting. I'll just kind of yell from back here so you can kind of hear me, but the radio audience... Can hear me. Uh, that was lovely, Colin. Happy birthday. Excited that you're alive and stuff. Glad you were born. Uh, your next comedian, he, yeah, open up the snacks. The snacks are there for everybody. Open the snacks. Get the snacks. Those stroop waffles are really good. Your next comedian, oh my gosh, he's, uh, so, he writes such good jokes. Put your hands together for Newman Shake. Yay! guys i was actually raised muslim and that was very accurate you know that, that felt like sunday school all over again that was cool yeah no, that, i know that i respect that because I, I i i could not tell that story accurately if i'm being honest i would have stopped <laughs> after like the second sentence what do you want i, I want to be the next maury i really do because <laughs> i got into comedy to like make people laugh and be happy and stuff. And I've realized I've never seen anybody happier than when they realize they're not the father. You know, that is, like I've never done a set and people start dancing and shit, you know, that's, that's I, um, 
abortions in the news. Let's talk about that. I feel like if they're going to get rid of abortion, they should also get rid of child labor rights. You know, like if we're forcing women to have these children, they should at least be able to get their money's worth. Like, that's my... I could tell that unironically at, like, CPAC, and I would get the biggest applause ever. Like, it would be... I would be so popular there. I, um... Do you think ISIS is jealous of COVID right now? Like, is that... You think they are? You think they're just like sitting in a cave, being like "fuck this bat" or whatever? Because I, first of all, COVID has a cooler name. COVID killed a lot more Americans, if we're being honest, and it did it with a cough. Like ISIS was dropping beheading videos. I think they used Adobe Pro to do it. Like it seemed, seemed very intense. I don't know. And then somebody ate a bat or fucked a bat. I don't know what happened, but I. I'd join ISIS if they gave me better health care than my current job. It would be such an easy... Di- like, they didn't need to drop those beheading videos. If they just offered people dental, like, it would be... I just want to kill myself with a smile, you know, that's... Is that too dark? Okay. I, um... I have this uh, very hardcore atheist friend, and, you know, that's cool. Like, he, he's very firmly anti-God, and that's fine. But he's also into crypto, and I don't know, man, how are you not going to believe in God but put your faith in Dogecoin? Like, that's... <laughs> feels like a bit much. They made a Gandhi movie in the 90s. Did you know that? They made a... Yeah, sure. Applause. Yeah. <laughs> they did it. Let's go, you know. I, I wasn't even born around that time, but, you know, I felt the W. <laughs> but, yeah. I, they made it, and I'm glad they made it in the 90s. Because we don't have a lot of Indian actors right now, you know? Like, we got Dev Patel, and he's too hot to be Gandhi, like, you know? <laughs> and uh, maybe it's just me, but I'm not ready to see Aziz Ansari be Gandhi. That... <laughs> uh, I, uh, no, that would, do you know how badly that would set my people back? Like, it would be... <laughs> it'd be if you had, like, Martin Luther King be played by Medea, you know? It'd be so... <laughs> it'd be horrible. I need to be more direct with people, I've realized that, because um, my roommate, he was taking too much space in the fridge, and I don't want to tell him that to his face, so I told him, that's a lot of food for one person. And now he has an eating disorder, so that's... Okay. It's okay, my roommate, he, he's a kind of dumb guy, so he deserves it. Like, I remember, I was telling my roommate I was kind of depressed, and he was like, Newman, you just need to smile more. And I was like, that, that's not good advice. Because I don't know, I feel like telling a depressed person to smile more is like telling a homeless person to check Zillow more often. Like, that's not how that works. Uh, yeah, happy birthday, Colin. Uh, what else is there? Um, I live in San Francisco right now. I like living in San Francisco. It's very nice. Like, we have all this diversity. You know, we have gay people, trans people white people, that's all the people. (laughs) But it's cool seeing them all come together and hate poor people, you know, that's that's cool. San Francisco is getting kind of crazy, like they're gentrifying crackheads, that's how, like usually when I walk past a crackhead, they're talking about stabbing people and shitting in places they're not supposed to shit in. I was walking past a crackhead today and he was yelling about his favorite kombucha store. I was like, how's a crackhead making me feel broke? That is, that's not good. 
I am, see, I am kind of young right now, but I do remember 9-11. I remember I was, <laughs> yeah, no, I, rem I was watching the newscast with my parents. My parents were looking horrified. If you don't believe that, you got some problems to sort out. But um, we were watching, and I saw that my parents didn't like what they were watching, so I took the remote, and I changed the channel to Nickelodeon. That's, I think, that's cool. Wow. I, I feel like Amelia Earhart is the worst feminist. <laughs> you know, because she said she was going to fly over the Pacific. And then she didn't. Like, that That gives us guys so much ammo. Like, every time my girlfriend gets too ambitious, I'm just kidding. I don't have a girlfriend. I need to work on a better punchline for that. I'm going to go home and think about I'm, I'm going to go on Amelia Earhart's Wikipedia page. That's what I'm going to do. I feel like the solution to social media addiction is just regular addiction. Like, you're not going to worry about Twitter if you're on crack. Like, that's... Like you want to know how to beat FOMO heroin easily. That's. I was watching Intervention recently, very fun show. But I was watching Intervention, and there was a point where this woman, she was like, an addiction is technically defined as when you do something so much, you can't function normally anymore. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, that is a stupid definition. Because babies are sober all the time, and I don't think they function normally. I think an addiction should be really described as when you do something so much, it becomes the most interesting thing about you. Like, if you're at parties and you're being introduced, like, hey, this is my friend, uh, the ketamine guy, <laughs> then, yeah, you need help. I don't know if I want kids. I really don't, because space to me is very important in a relationship. And I feel like adults get that, but I can't go to, like, a two-year-old and be like, look, I know you shit your pants. But Saturday nights are for the boys. Like, that's this is me time, you know? Okay, goodbye, guys. Newman Shake, everyone! Newman Shake, hooray! It's weird because I'm back here and it's the radio and you can't hear me, but I can hear the. Anyway, your next comedian, he's new to the room. I don't know who he is. I'm excited that he's here. How do you find out about it? Put your hands together, everybody, for Charlie! Yay! What's up, y'all? Thank you for that introduction. Very much appreciated. Um, I was a weird kid growing up. Anyone else here? Weird kids growing up? Yeah, I say that like it's in the past. I'm still growing up. <laughs> yeah, but one thing that I learned that helped me kind of break out of my shell was that the simplest way to fake coolness is just doing things to the side. For instance, if I want to seem cool to you guys, I'll take the mic, put it to the side, take my head, put it to the side, take my mouth, put it to the side, and then lean over and start talking to y'all like this. <laughs> now I seem a little cooler. If I want to show coolness to one particular person, maybe our host, I'll look back and I'll close one eye on one side. <laughs> I was always the kid who'd go to parties, and I'd just hang out by the wall, I'd do nothing, I'd hang out here, I'd be the weird kid. But I realized that I can do the same thing and still be cool by just doing this the whole night. <laughs> Exactly. Um, back in middle school, when you first realize like, what coolness is and you try to act cool, men learn to take our hats to the side, our backpacks to the side, and all of our natural emotions and push those way to the side. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag masculinity. <laughs> yeah. And then when you, the, the same thing goes for like mass media. Like in music, 
rappers are always be like, hey, shout out South Side. Hey, shout out North Side. Never is a rapper like, hey, yo, Midtown. <laughs> or when rappers want to brag about their sex lives, they'll, always talk, they'll never talk about like their main chick. They talk about their side chick. <laughs> or in movies, bad guy, badass. <laughs> Uh, I'm originally from here, from San Francisco, and then I went out to Vermont for college, which basically means that I've spent my entire life living in places with less black people than the real-life version of the play Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. San Francisco is only 5% black, and it was really funny, because growing up, because of that, when I heard Occupy Wall Street protesters talking about we are the 99%, I thought they were white supremacists. <laughs> I went to school the next day like, I am the 1%. <laughs> yeah. I was one of only four African-American kids in my entire high school graduating class. It was wild. And we were actually all in the same African-American history class, which was my favorite class for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is that all four of us would sit in the line on one side of the classroom and called ourselves the Negro. <laughs> And, and then if any of us showed up late and couldn't sit with the rest of the black kids in the class, we'd point at them and call them Candace Owens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my favorite thing about that class is that we could say whatever we wanted and nobody would ever contradict us. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember this one lecture we were having, and it was on famous African-American sayings. And one girl raises her hand, and she says, teacher, one saying I remember from the reading is, we shall overcome. And instead of looking at the teacher for approval, she just looked at the black kids. <laughs> like, we were the Supreme Court of blackness. <laughs> Next guy raises his hand, and he says, teacher, another saying I remember from the reading is, no justice, no peace. And then he looked at us like, yeah. Again, then we're past now. And then, but, like I said, I can say what I, whatever I want in that class. So I figured I'd have a little bit of fun with it. And I raise my hand and I say, teacher, the most iconic African-American saying of all is, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> and little would you guess it, above all the other statements that people said, the teacher wrote mine. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. I love that class, though. Um, a fun fact about me is I'm actually born on the same day as my mom. And to prove it, I have a tattoo on my rib cage. Yeah, I have that. And I always make sure to explain the backstory of the tattoo, because without it, big red flag. Having a tattoo in big, bold lettering of your own birthday <laughs> is probably the first question on the WebMD test for are you a narcissist? <laughs> yeah. One of my friends is in the same boat. And he's always like, ah, you know, we're gifts to our parents because we were born on their birthdays. To which I say, no, I was a gift because I was born out of love and given out of love. You were given out of wedlock. <laughs> yeah, so that's my story. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you all. Charlie, everyone. Hooray. Hooray for Charlie. Thank you for showing us your tummy. You, yeah, you look like um, the Liverpool player named Curtis Jones. And um, the, I was like, he didn't, he, Liverpool won yesterday, but he didn't take his shirt off, and I was really sad. But then you lifted up your shirt, so I feel like 
Thank you. You're the proxy for Curtis Jones, and I appreciate you. Thank you. That's very funny. Yay, come back again and again. I'll ask you later how you found about us. Uh, your next comedian, I'm so excited. We're having a we're having a rock block of black dudes, everybody. Put your hands together for Devontre Coleman. Yay! What's up with y'all? I, I think Newman count is the black people, too. Because if they bring slavery back, he with us. So uh, I recently came out as asexual. It was an accident. One of the homies asked me why I don't flirt with random women at bars. And saying I was asexual just felt a whole lot better than saying I'm a shy adult. Uh, yeah, I started doing stand-up comedy because I wanted to get over my shyness. I thought it would help me get out of my bubble. Now I'm just shy and depressed. <laughs> um, I recently went on a date. I took a date to an open mic comedy set, but then one of my friends was like, yo, you should go up. And that fucked up my plans because I didn't want to disappoint her till later on in the night. Um, yeah, I've pretty much been a disappointment my entire life. Um, I work in tech now, which is pretty cool. I thought, I texted my mother, said, yo, we rich now. And she said, oh, I'm proud of you, but I wish you were cripping. <laughs> I taught myself how to code, so I think I can teach myself how to be a gang member. <laughs> so I got my job in tech and I moved to San Francisco. And like, it was hard, because I didn't know a single soul in San Francisco. So like, I started going out places. I got on dating apps, trying to meet people. I went to a bar, I met a couple dudes, and they're like, yeah, you should download Grindr. So I downloaded Grindr. I thought it was an app for niggas with work ethic. <laughs> I mean, it is, but it ain't. I, uh, so before I moved to San Francisco, I taught at like a boot camp that teaches adults how to transition to like careers in software engineering. And that was like really cool. I had a whole lot of fun, but my biggest fear was that one day I would be sharing my screen and my porn bookmarks would pop up. I, um, I was raised like with toxic masculinity. I put my feelings to the side. I'm trying to get over that and like, I'm getting more comfortable with myself. Like, I'm confident enough to go get a mani-pedi every few weeks, but I'm not confident enough to tell the nail tech that she's being too rough. <laughs> like, I don't want her to think I'm soft. I, uh, I recently found out that I really, me and my friends really might be addicted to porn. Um, we compiled a list of the 50 greatest porn stars and their NBA equivalent. <laughs> But yeah, and in an effort to get over this toxic masculinity, like me and my friends, we we like we we were bonding more. We were spending more time together. So we recently ran a train in the metaverse. And it sounds cool until you realize that it's just me and six of my closest friends moaning in each other's ear until we climax in unison. That post-nut clarity is pretty insane. <laughs> I don't know if y'all know a lot about post-nut clarity, but it's after you get done fucking something and you rethink every decision you ever made to get you to that point in your life. 
And for two minutes, you think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to do better. I personally have never done better. <laughs> I have only gotten worse. Because I kept getting such worse, when I was younger, I came up with this idea on how to defeat post-nut clarity. It's called premeditated disgust. <laughs> That's when you hype yourself down for a full week. You know what you're going to do is going to be bad. But if you bummed out about it already, it's not a surprise. <laughs> Thank y'all for your time. That's all I got. Devondre! Yay! Devondre's killer! I'm sorry I fucked you up with the horn horn and the stuff, but that was amazing. Hey, there's wine over on the thing. It's like a private party tonight. That There's wine and there's snacks. Eat the foods, drink the wines, and um, and the the foods and the dip the dip the dippies because COVID's over, so you can use um, you can dip the pretzels in the in the hummus, and it's no one's gonna die. Uh, all right, your next comedian, what a lovely human being he is. I'm training him to take over um, when I'm gone in Greece. He's learning the board. Put your hands together, everybody, for Josh Kotsky! Yay! Uh. Charlie, your, uh, your, your set made me think about something that happened to me in high school. We were learning about the, uh, the triangle trade, uh, and our, our teacher asked someone to explain what the triangle trade was, and this kid named Ramez raised his hand and was like, all right, uh, that's when the Americans would send cotton to England, and the British would go down to Africa and enslave all the African Americans. <laughs> like, the, the, that's not what they were yet. <laughs> they were about to become African Americans, but... Um, question for you sports fans. How much eye black can you wear before it's considered blackface? <laughs> One line, two line, three line, hate crime. Uh, you guys ever get so drunk that you order a package and then like a week later you get a package from yourself? Isn't it great? It's like, it's like getting a package from Santa which is especially special for me because I'm Jewish and never got those. Uh, no, it's great. Well, like a few months ago, I got uh, some exfoliating cream. I was like, oh my God, drunk me. How do you know I was insecure about my pores? <laughs> uh, I got one last month that was really weird though. Apparently, I, I don't remember ordering any of this, but apparently I blacked out so hard that I ordered three vials of insulin. Yeah, yeah. And what was crazy, like, the weird thing about it was, like, I must have accidentally put my neighbor's name on it. Uh, but, like, I figured out the whole issue. It's fine. I returned everything, got all my money back, and now I have a new neighbor. So <laughs> we're all good. Uh, diabetics dying. Hell yeah. Um, any of you guys know what Roman wipes are? Yeah, people? Yeah, you know what Roman wipes are. Most people don't like to admit it. Roman wipes are a moist towelette that you swipe on your dick because you come too fast. Which, of all the issues we have, is that really what the scientists need to be working on? They're like, yeah, there's world hunger, but that dude needs to last longer. <laughs> what, what I think's funny about Roman wipes, though, is that they advertise a lot, and they always advertise using the same phrase. They're like, we'll ship this to you in a discreet, unmarked package. You know, like you would ship a, a bomb in. Yeah. Because dudes would rather you think they're a terrorist 
than that their dick doesn't work good. <laughs> uh, I've, I'm thinking a lot about like how I want to be remembered when I die. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. But like, you know, everything everyone thinks about it, and I realize it really doesn't matter what you do because no one has control over how people think about them. Like Jackson Pollock was an amazing artist. He probably didn't think he'd only be remembered when people come on a wall. Rasputin was like an evil piece of shit, and people just know him for like having a big dick and a cool song, you know, rah, rah, Rasputin. I think the, the worst, like, Hitler looking down, he probably thought like, after all that shit he did, we wouldn't remember the art school thing. You know, he probably wanted to wipe that off, but now anytime you hear someone start a joke about like, oh, I had this friend who failed out of art school, you're like, that's a Hitler joke. All right, I, uh, I, I had to call the bank today, and I got uh, one of those automated messages, and I'm fucking sick of those. I had to yell at it for a half hour. And I'm just like, can I, can I speak to a representative? Speak to a representative. You speak English. Speak to a representative. So when the robots take over, I'm getting canceled, because that's some Karen-type talk to the manager shit. Gonna work on that one. A hot girl in the gym is like a solar eclipse. You can't look right at her. You gotta look at her through a reflection. You know, maybe from under a cardboard box. <laughs> Still figuring it out. Um, all right, two more. I think Jesus is a failure. The dude was preaching Judaism and invented Christianity. That's about as bad as you could fail at something. And then last one, I'm getting sick of my phone, like not even pretending like it's not listening to me, you know? Like you'll 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 talk about something, you'll be like, I want pizza. You look at your phone immediately, add for dominoes. I had this argument with my girlfriend, she was screaming at me for like an hour. Like, I'm not gonna bore you with the details, it's personal, so whatever. But like as soon as she was done, I look at my phone and boom, add for Roman wipes. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Give it up for Pam. Josh Kosky, everyone, with the callback and the puns and the funny, funny, funnies. Yay, Josh Kosky, you're my favorite. Yay. Oh, you're one of my favorites because your next comedian is like literally my favorite. Put your hands together. The very tall, the very lanky, Ian Langlands. Yay. All right, check your shit. What's up, everybody? I am uh, well. One of the one of the more th more interesting things about me that I try to make my personality is that I play the drums. I play the drums, and that's a cool thing. And, and people are impressed when I tell them that. But the problem with that is like it's not a skill I can ever really show off. Like you, you won't believe the envy I feel when I see a guy at a party doing magic tricks. You know, I'm like, damn, everybody's looking at him. Like there's no scenario where I'm like at a party. I'm like, hey guys, I play the drums. Let's all drive down to Guitar Center. I'm gonna give you a show on the display kit. Like that's not a scenario that's ever gonna happen. Also, in, in terms of like other instruments, is it, most instruments are very beautiful. Like a guitar, like a piano, you can move people to tears. Even if I was in the situation where I could play the drums for someone, no one's gonna be crying to me, being like, doo -doo 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 -doo. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe it's possible. I haven't tried it. I guess. I don't. Uh, I, I am generally I like representation, <laughs> but I feel like uh, 
generally, okay? I just feel like sometimes representation is in unneeded places. Like, I don't think the handicapped community is celebrating how many cartoons there are of them in high school textbooks, you know? 